0: These are are others' words about you. We have purpose. We have a why.
1: We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, and welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines, the show where we discuss the intersection of sports and faith. This week, we are joined by a legend, the true treat for Rabbi on the Sidelines, the list of accomplishments is too long to read, but we're going to just hit a couple. Emmy Award winner, Thursday Night Football on Amazon broadcaster, Pete Rozelle Television Radio Award winner, Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee, Correspondent with HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, covered 25 Super Bowls, NBA Finals, Major League All-Star Games, NCAA tournaments, Stanley Cup Finals, the Olympics, And that's just to name a few. We are so thrilled to be joined by Andrea Kramer. Andrea, thanks for joining us on Rabbi on the Sidelines.
0: Hello, Rabbi. How are you?
1: I am great, and we cannot begin without a shout out to Pam Weisberg, yeah. Council member, and just a wonderful friend of uh, our community and I know of yours as well so yeah, Pam long thank you.
0: long time friend uh just someone that I have the most professional admiration for and the the greatest personal affection for so yes. Uh, Pam is, is a dear friend and I'm glad that she connected us, but now I just want to warn you, I have been known to hijack interviews. I promise you, I won't do that, but I do have to ask one thing. Of course. What the heck are you doing on the sidelines? How did, how did, why, why, why are you doing this? Why do you, why do you feel passionate about this?
1: I love it. So now I'm being interviewed by Andrea Kramer. This is great. Um, so I actually, we'll talk about that because faith in sports is something that, um, I believe as a rabbi, has to come together. Um, I actually asked Tom Rinaldi a couple of weeks ago of uh, Catholic faith. I said, Tom, should I be doing this? And it actually started in 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, when we needed Zoom programming um, for our synagogue. And the passion that I brought with sports, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. um, And, uh, you know, the Syracuse Orange football, basketball, those those are our Lakers growing up. No synagogue programming happened when there was a Georgetown Syracuse game. It was absolutely not going to happen. And my dad well, we was like Even
0: God has his priorities in line, right?
1: <laughs> that's true. But it, the synagogue gathered there. And I realized that it was really a sacred space within the Carrier Dome. Now, no longer the Carrier Dome, the JMA Dome, but that's another topic. And um, what I realized is I started talking to people in the sports world, both broadcasters and athletes, and it was all relationship-based. It started with my Syracuse connections during rabbinical school. Coaching in Beheim basketball camp, refereeing there, got me through rabbinical school. <laughs> a couple of dollars, but also a passion. And I realized that wherever I took my rabbinic journey, I wanted to um, also have sports within that. And when I got here to Sinai Temple, I was able to start a basketball camp, competing with the best basketball camps in Los Angeles. But the kids wanted to come here because they felt that a, a safe space and also a space that they can, I, I said, high level sports and high level values. And so in our basketball camp we do a social action project every day we have a Shabbat dinner as an award ceremony We're doing things off the court and that's why speaking to people like you hearing what you're doing off the court off the camera is as or even more inspiring than what I see on the camera as well So that's well, just I, the uh, genesis
0: yeah no I appreciate you sharing that I think it's absolutely fascinating because uh, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you and I don't know if any of your other uh, broadcast, uh, people have talked about this um and if they are if they haven't then they're not telling you the full truth and that <laughs> is that in the television world there is a very um uh delicate balance that you have to draw mm-hmm. with religion um uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the, you don't even know, you don't even know this. And I tried to find this for you to send this to you before the interview. And I I couldn't yet. And it, it used to be posted on YouTube and I, it, it evaporated, however, whatever the word is in, in cyberspace, but uh, I still do want to find it for you. It's one of the greatest stories I've ever done. It was back when I was at ESPN and it was mm-hmm. completely religion based. And I could tell you about it later if you're interested, but the point that I'm bringing it up for is that, when the story literally came to me, I said to my coordinating producer on Sunday, NFL countdown for ESPN, I said, okay, this isn't one of those, we're going to get the interview and we'll say, we're going to talk about religion, but then we're mm-hmm. going to talk about football. No, no, this is a story about religion. And typically historically, historically, It's been a it's been a channel changer. Soon Mm -hmm. as people start hearing about religion, a lot of them just change the channel. And I said, Mm -hmm. we can't do that. So if you want to tell the story the right way, you have to make a commitment to understanding it's going to be about religion. So Mm -hmm. I've just always found that it's a very, very delicate balance, I think. And and truthfully, Rabbi, there have only been a handful of athletes that I can tell you that I feel assured in my heart that their faith is as advertised it Mm -hmm. is what they say it is because i I, me personally i really struggle with god help me win this game really yes did he not help the other team uh is is god really cheering here so you know i think that um i think that what you're doing is really tremendous certainly in the synagogue and with the programs and and promoting healthy living and the right values and, and associating sport with religion But from a television broadcast perspective, I think it has always been a very, a relationship fraught with a lot of angst.
1: It's actually interesting as I speak to people really in the broadcast industry. So like Jimmy Dykes from ESPN, he wrote a book right behind me called The Film Doesn't Lie. And it's all about how God watches us and also how in the sports world, the film doesn't lie. That the the film tells exactly what's going to happen. Dan Shulman, he said, you know what, we have to separate this. But then as we dug deeper, he began sharing the story of the Gulf War, where he was at that moment. He was just a junior broadcaster in hockey in Ontario. And he he left the broadcast because he said, there's a war in Israel. I need to go home. And on the screen said, due to events in the Middle East, this broadcast has ended. He said, could I have done that ESPN? Probably not. But at that moment, I had to decide who I was. Seth Greenberg, ESPN. He said, the locker room is my sanctuary. And each one of these people has brought a... A sense of when we use the word faith loosely, they seem to tell me that right. It's not about God made me hit the home run and God made the left fielder drop the fly ball, but there's a deeper sense, uh, a deeper sense right there. And so my question is, have you seen that um, both in the locker room, on the field? And I know, for instance, I talked to David Sampson a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the Kennedy case right now that the coach goes on the field and prays after the game, and that's that's going to the Supreme Court. So. That's the broadcast booth. What about on the field within the teams? Where do you see faith aspects in a deeper way?
0: Well, look, uh, take the sport of professional football, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, an an inherently violent sport. Mm. Whatever it takes mentally for the player to prepare to get on the field, he or she, I guess, but primarily he has to embrace that. Mm-hmm. and if his faith and and however he manifests that faith however he feels that faith is genuine to him if that gives him confidence to be able to go out there and really 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 put his body and oftentimes his life at risk because you know you hear it but it is as someone who has been on the field literally for decades mm-hmm. and has heard the sounds of the game wow. it's not always a pretty place
1: mm-hmm. and
0: it everybody is really one hit away from unfortunately what could be disaster. Mm-hmm. So uh and certainly a career ending injury. So if that gives them strength, then I'm all for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The uh the athlete who I dealt with, whose faith was the most genuine and really out there, and it's actually the subject of the story that I mentioned to you earlier, is the late Hall of Famer Reggie White. Mm. And um
1: uh, a pastor. Yep.
0: Pastor uh, and uh, was with the Philadelphia Eagles, won yep. a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. And I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, Packers win the NFC Championship game against the Carolina Panthers in 1997. And I typically, so when I was with ESPN, I typically, I'd stay over. And if the team, if it worked with the team schedule, I would do my pre Super Bowl interviews the next few days. So Monday, Day after the game, we're all set up to, you know, do Brett Favre and to do Reggie. Da, da, da. So, Reggie walks in and he was a, a truly physically larger than life presence. And he had that, that scratchy voice, which I could try to imitate, but I'm not going to do justice <laughs> to it. But he walks in and he fills up the room and he goes, They're going to have to listen to me now. Meaning that he was about to have the biggest pulpit he's ever had. Mm, love it. Super Bowl media. The mm-hmm. world's media, and they were going to have to listen to him, and mm-hmm. he was right. Uh, but he is someone whose faith was so strong, and we would talk about it. Um, and uh, and I learned quite a bit from him. But his uh, it was very very genuine. Another person uh, in the coaching ranks was Tony Dungy, mm-hmm. Absolutely. who uh, certainly sustained the most you know, tragic of losses with his eldest son committing suicide, Mm -hmm. James. And, uh, you know, talk about needing faith to get you through that. Mm -hmm. He and Lauren needed that. But uh, so I've seen it. I just um, and and you see players that come together on the field after the game, all pray together in a circle. Uh, Again, if that's if that's what they what what gives them strength and that's fine. But. You know, the natural skeptic in me says, I also know plenty of guys, truthfully, who who say they're so devout and they're so you know faithful to God and faithful and they ain't faithful other places. Let's just put it that way.
1: <laughs> I right. trying to
0: be diplomatic there. So again, I, I have seen my share of hypocrisy as well. But you know, I, I've learned over the years not to judge. It's just that simple. Well, Unless, I think- and with personal stuff. Unless it affects their performance, Mm -hmm. and hence I need to look into it, Mm -hmm. it's their personal business.
1: Well, I think the fact that you say do not judge is just an aspect of faith as well. I mean, that is what our High Holy Day message is all about. It's not the judgment of the other, but in fact, the judgment of the self. And when you speak about pulpit, right, the media within the sports, it is a pulpit and These days, it's becoming the bigger pulpit. And we're just a couple of days after this just horrible tragedy in Texas where 19 children and two teachers are murdered senselessly. And just last night, Steve Kerr, coach of the Warriors, during the NBA playoffs, sports can be a distraction, but it also can be a pulpit. And he was quoted as saying, when are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm so tired of getting up here, offering condolences to the devastated families out there. I'm tired of the moments of silence. What is the role of that sports pulpit when something like a national tragedy happens or when an athlete or a coach or a broadcaster can bring moments of change to our society?
0: Did you see Steve Carr? Did you actually see it? Did you watch it? Did you listen to mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Because if anybody hasn't, I would strongly advise you you'll find it pretty quickly online mm-hmm. because to read the words does not do justice to the passion and the pain Mm -hmm. in his voice. And for, for some of your uh, listeners, watchers who do not know Steve Kerr's father, Malcolm was assassinated. Uh, So he, his father, he, Steve Kerr himself, uh, his family obviously was a victim of gun violence. What look, Steve Kerr is, um, has the gravitas and the uh, passion and the uh, informed opinion to be able to do what he did. And I think that it's vital. I, I, when he even talked about what is that, that moment of silence doesn't mean anything because mm-hmm. we're just going to go and get on the court right after that. And everybody's going to forget And calling out the 50 senators and his, all you had to do was hear the pain and the strength in his voice. And if it forces every writer, broadcaster to put that message out there, Mm -hmm. then that in itself has power and strength, in my opinion. Uh, You can't avoid that, that. That was the story with Steve Kerr. He wasn't talking about, you know, rebounding and how was the three-point shooting or anything like that. And look, I think that we associate players using their platform in these past couple of years, particularly post-George Floyd's murder, Mm -hmm. with social activism, with social justice. And it is hugely important for these athletes and coaches to be able to do that if that's what's important to them. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, I got to tell you, I'd rather see the players and coaches do it than the leagues try to do performative gestures Mm -hmm. that really don't mean anything that look like they're just doing the politically correct thing. The players are the ones they have are the ones with the power. And I, I admire, and I encourage them to use it, to use their voices as much as possible.
1: I think you're a genius at that, just watching years of what you do on the field, but also the investigative journalism, specifically with the uh, real sports and HBO. and you've, I, I just finished Jim Gray's book about uh, talking to goats, and you've talked to goats, greatest of all times, from Brady to Kobe to Phelps to Jordan. And here's a quick interview with uh, Kobe, and I just want to ask you about last week I had Miss Val, the UCLA Hall of Fame gymnastics coach, and he talks about the art of the nudge and the courage to ask. And you definitely have the courage to ask. And this is when you sat down with Kobe. Kobe, this is what you said to him.
0: Smile, because you know what's coming, right? Loner, selfish, single-minded, arrogant, aloof, relentless, obsessed, ruthless. And your own teammate, Steve Nash, when asked to describe you in three words, quote, mother effing <laughs> Why are you laughing?
1: Because they're all true. (laughs) I think that's what we call chutzpah in the uh, Jewish world. (laughs) How do you have the ability to sit down with Kobe Bryant, perhaps one of the greatest of all times, and say to his face those things, but deeper trying to bring out something for the audience to really understand of who he is?
0: Well, I think that first of all, I think his reaction told you everything about who he is and mm-hmm. that he embraces that, Um uh, mm-hmm. in, in that real sports piece. Uh, and that was actually the only, uh, TV news magazine story that he did the year that he, his final year playing, uh, we had to, I had to ask him about, uh, the sexual assault allegations mm-hmm, that occurred in, in Colorado. That was a little bit more fraught with, um, Look, I um, I believe you can ask anything if it's asked respectfully mm-hmm. and in the right way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If my tone had been, here's some words that were said about you. You're real this, you're this, you're this. It sounds accusatory. Mm. But I was trying to take sort of a, not a lighter tone, but I was quoting words that mm-hmm. had been said about him, And then of course, quoting his teammate. And I think that it, was what we call good tv but Mm -hmm. it also the the key is not just to make good tv the key is to give the audience insight when we're doing profiles insight into these players or coaches that they would not get otherwise it's just that simple but i think that i think that you really can ask anything that you want if it is if it is asked with the right tone Mm -hmm. and it's fairly uh I've been in a number of situations where you have to ask either, um, questions that are fraught with tremendous emotion or they are, they may be seen as accusatory. And again, you just, yeah, you you can't back down. That's what journalism is all about. That's not, let me post something on social media Mm -hmm. because I don't have to have Andrea Kramer ask me a follow-up question. Right. And I think that that I I, I like to think I hope that the audience is savvy enough to understand the difference between the two.
1: And so one of the other greatest of all times that you really followed was Michael Jordan. I basically grew up in that era as a child with his posters on the wall. And uh, this is what you said to Rich Eisen about how you nailed that interview when he came back to the land of uh, basketball. That
0: was the start. And then, yeah, I did all six of Jordan's championships. But I did I did everything I did. You know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the gam- the gambling in Atlantic City, the death of his father, following him on, on the road when he went and played baseball.
1: So after that, he comes back and uh, you were quoted as saying, you know, Diane Sawyer couldn't nail him, but. Andrea Kramer got that interview. Well, it was actually,
0: trust. yeah, it was actually a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle who wrote it. Uh, better than me saying it, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I believe in undersell and over deliver. That's one of my biggest mantras in life, believe me. Uh, and no, the a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle uh, wrote, uh, you know, Dan Rather, Diane Sawyer, Ed Bradley, all these people tried to get Michael Jordan, but Andrea Kramer got the interview Mm -hmm. because she had a longstanding relationship with him. You know, I, I, again, you, that, that's the other thing. You got to be there through all the times to me. That's when he he came back from Atlantic city in the middle of the playoffs, Mm -hmm. I was standing there with a microphone asking Mm -hmm. him questions uh, when he uh, had to testify in the slim Buller trial down in North Carolina, um, that I was down there. And again, um, you know, you, you give someone an opportunity to answer the questions. Uh, as I always say, I have to ask, you don't have to answer. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one thing, for example, in real sports, we don't pay for interviews and we, have, we give no parameters for interviews. I have to be, we have to be able to ask anything that we, we need to Doesn't mean we're going to ask it, Mm -hmm. but again, I have to ask, you don't have to answer, but the minute you abdicate any kind of control over an interview in terms of, oh yeah, I won't ask that. Mm -hmm. You're you're opening Pandora's box that you cannot close Mm -hmm. because the minute you do that, you say, well, I don't have to, you said you won't ask me about that. So I don't want you to ask me about this. Mm -hmm. You you just, you just can't do that. But uh, listen, I am very, I was going to say blessed, but I guess when I'm talking to a rabbi, that's got a whole different connotation. No, right? exactly. Yeah, I am very. I don't want to say lucky, because I feel that it wasn't luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was certainly timing, and I I hope to think that it was some skill mm-hmm. that I've covered, as I say, the two greatest Michael's in all of sports, Michael yep. Jordan and Michael Phelps, at Absolutely. key moments in their careers, and uh, I am extremely, extremely grateful for that.
1: So actually, I think sometimes blessing is lucky, blessing is fortunate, but also the tradition says that you're supposed to say 100 blessings a day and people say, how can you do that? But if you open up your eyes, the blessings are there. Sometimes you actually just have to grab them with the, what you see and what you feel as well. So I think lucky and blessing within the faith world do go uh, hand in hand. And some of those things that I would say are timing, skill and fortune are what you have done um, in the world of broadcasting, but also really breaking the gender barrier. And one show that you had, We Need to Talk, uh, brings 12 women together. And uh, this is what you have to say about why a show like this was necessary.
0: Do you an female show? Well, it's historic. There's never been, I mean, you may have a woman that appears on another sports show, but never have you had all these women from these very different backgrounds bringing their opinions, their knowledge to a show like this. But and you know what, guys?
1: So what was we need to talk about? It reminds me that
0: my hair looked a lot better when I had somebody that did it professionally. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, no.
1: It's okay. Some people are watching just, are listening just on audio, so we're all good.
0: You know what? Um, I that was an I got to tell you that was an idea that germinated in me for a really, really long time, and I'm not alone in that. I think, mm -hmm. but I think you know the, the funny thing is whether it was my dear friend, Amy Trask, who I was sitting next to on that CBS this morning set or Leslie Visser or Pam Oliver, you know, my, my, my long time, decades long pals. We're always talking sports Mm -hmm. and we could be talking about Steve Kerr, or we could be talking about uh, Steph Curry's shooting, whatever it is. We're talking about, we're talking X's and O's, whatever. And finally we had a show where in essence, we're just doing what, on camera what we've always done behind Mm -hmm. the camera and people just get a chance to see so i think that uh this whole notion that you either you had to play the game you need to uh uh, as though men are born with some gene Mm -hmm. that predisposes them to know or love sports i think is is ridiculous i think that Women can ha- be passionate about anything that men are and sports happens to be one of them. But ironically, you know, I speak to a lot of corporations and I'll speak to a main group. And then there's usually a breakout group with female executives. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them the water cooler really exists mm-hmm. on a Monday morning after the Rams have played or the charges have played. You don't need to know what happened on third and 10 from the 17 with two minutes to go but you need to know who won the game. You need mm-hmm. to know who had a good game. You need to know the headlines, because if not, you're not in that conversation at the yeah. water cooler. Mm-hmm. And it's, it does, it, it is part of the culture. And certainly it's part of a male dominated culture. But uh, I, I do, I've done over the years a number of these, they're called NFL 101 seminars teaching women about football, even though at some point men came and said, you can't say it's just teaching women about football mm. because we want to come too nice. but, but I, I say, it doesn't matter if you don't know a first down from a down comforter, we can <laughs> give you enough information because right. the more you understand, the more you're going to enjoy it. It's just mm-hmm. that simple. Just like the more you know who the players are, you know, football is a unique sport because they're helmeted.
1: You're right, exactly. You don't
0: see their faces. You don't really see what they look like. You know, of course, everybody knows what Tom Brady looks like, but you, you for the mo- majority of players, you don't. If you know who they are, if you know something about them, you care more about them. If you care more about them, you care more to watch the game, and it just builds the audience. And again, it's not just for men. Uh, it's it's excuse me, it's not just for women, but I think that that men want to uh, men want to to know more as well.
1: So when you talk about the cooler here, I actually say it's by the Ark. So that's where we do our, uh, our chats here, by the Ark in okay. the Torah. <laughs> um, but when you... But you talk, about, you're,
0: you're talking about the, the game on Mondays by the Torah?
1: Absolutely. What do you think the rabbis are talking about between the sermons and the page announcements? It's who's playing. And I say that um, tongue in cheek, but also seriously, because Rabbi Solomon Schechter, he was the first conservative rabbi in America. He was quoted as saying that you cannot be a rabbi in this country of the United States of America without talking about baseball. Now, that was many, many years ago. And the idea that when you're speaking from a religious pulpit, you also have to know the place where you are in this country of America and what it stands for. What do you see that football stands for? It's basically the most watched sport in America. Sundays are a holiday. Sundays are are football day. What does football represent in this country of America?
0: Wow, that is a a deep question in the sense that It is very multifaceted for me because from a competitive and sporting perspective, from an analytical standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, it's a fascinating sport. Mm -hmm. There's so many layers to understand. Uh, You know, I feel very fortunate that over the years, I, I mean, really, well, I'm talking like decades, years. I've watched so much film and I've asked questions. And when you don't know something, I always tell young people, never BS your way through something. If you don't know, just ask. People mm-hmm. always know if you really don't have the information. Mm-hmm. Watching film with coaches, just, but that's, I, I love that. You know, I, I, I love being able to to do that. And uh, so football has All of that, the great, it's got the grace, it's got the grit, it's got an element of violence that people can live vicariously through, Mm -hmm. but let's not sugarcoat it. It's a violent game. Mm -hmm. And we know what it could, what it does to bodies, what it does to limbs, what it does to brains. And it's, 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 there is definitely a level of cognitive dissonance that people who cover the game need to really come to grips with. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the old, uh, you know how the sausage is made, and sometimes it's not so tasty to know that. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a complicated issue, but uh, yeah, I love football. I've loved it since I was eight years old, mm-hmm. and I learned about it. And, and the, the thing that I had going for me, I, which I always say, and it's hugely important to me, is I had two parents that thought it was okay that cute little Andy liked football. Mm-hmm. And My parents supported me and bought me books and and took me to games. And I convinced my dad to buy tickets to the season tickets to the Philadelphia Eagles. And we did. And and it really was a way that our family came together on yes. Sundays. And um and it does bring people together, no doubt.
1: And so there are f- stories that happen off the field. The one story that I saw that you really reported on during covid was a story of Laurent uh, Laurent DuVernay Tardif, who basically said, I'm not playing football. I'm going to help people and save their lives. Another Jewish value of pikuach nefesh to save a life. Um, maybe take us through that story and how you either re- earlier, you said the stories come to you. Are there times though that you go find that story? Oh yeah. All so the that time. The public needs to hear something that like you said, we don't see on TV.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I mean, the story that again, that I mentioned with, with Reggie White that we haven't even talked about, but yes, with mm-hmm. Laurent, Laurent is a very unique person. Um, he is uh, a medical doctor, Mm-hmm. He has a, the only active player with a medical degree, and he got that degree while he was playing football, uh, <laughs> and which is really an amazing thing. He is very very smart, but he's also very very driven, and he won a Super Bowl. Uh, he is Canadian, so we went to school up at McGill. He's from Montreal, outside of Montreal, and at the onset, he and uh, they win the Super Bowl, and he and his partner. They go on a trip and they come back and they're kind of hearing about this thing called COVID. They're not sure what it is. And really to, to encapsulate what happened, uh, players were allowed to opt out of the season, right? They could opt out for medical reasons, in which case they got their full salary, or they could opt out for other reasons, in which case they did not get a full salary. Uh, The team would, would, uh, Toll their contract, which is basically put it ahead to the next season. Mm -hmm. And that's what Laurent chose to do because he could not see being in a public health emergency and leaving the people at the hospital to do the work while he's off playing a game. Although it's a very, very, very high paying game and it's Mm -hmm. his day job and all. And for him, He had not done his rotation yet. So there are only certain things he could do. And some of those things were the most mundane. And it could be drawing blood. It could be whatever. But what it was doing is it was freeing up doctors to do other things. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that Laurent did, which, you know, talk about needing faith, is, as you know, when you were in the hospital, you're cut off from all family. And especially older people. And they're not convert. You know, they're not comfortable with the iPads and devices and FaceTime and Laurent would get their families on. And, mm-hmm. and that would be sometimes the only time the entire day he would facilitate the communication. And uh, it was heartbreaking to, for, for, for people that were really involved in that. He would go, he would leave the hospital. He's living with his girlfriend. He would leave the hospital. He had a, an apartment. That he would go, there's nothing in the apartment, but basically like a couple of pillows on the floor and a washing machine. Walk in the uh, apartment, disrobe, wash all the clothes. And then a lot of times he described having just sort of, he would like lay on the floor and sometimes he would just cry Mm. because of what he experienced. And he needed to try to have closure for that for the day before he went home. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to bring disease home physically, or he wanted to try to bring home as best as he could a clear mind. But it was really, uh, you know, to hear him talk about it. I have such admiration for this man making a decision like that, putting aside the money, putting aside, you know, all the things that football is a very short life. Mm -hmm. You know, there were no guarantees that the chiefs were going to take him back and he did the right thing. And, um, Gosh, my admiration for him is is just boundless.
1: So faith in another aspect is reaching the top. We talked about the we need to talk, but I want to talk about Thursday Night Football on Amazon that the producer said this show was made for you and Hannah Storm. If it wasn't you two, it wasn't going to be anybody. So here's uh, what you said about uh, speaking with Hannah about what it meant to uh, get Thursday Night Football.
0: Doing when it. we were growing up, we didn't exist. Right. There were no women to look at and say, oh, I want to do what she right. does. Right. It wasn't really a career option. No, right. and for me, my path was a little bit different because I started off as a writer. And then from a writer, I went to be a producer. And then Steve Sable from NFL Films, who said, I want you to co host the show with me, this is the NFL. I had no idea how to be on camera, but I was a pretty good producer. And I figured that the good producer I was could bail out the talent that I was not at that point. (laughs) And that set me off on my trajectory.
1: So that trajectory from a writer to on camera to being the two only female duos in the studio on an NFL broadcast. uh, What does that mean? Not just to you, but to the future of my daughter, who's 10 years old watching sports.
0: First of all, I want to give you kudos for finding all these clips. I, I really I I have great admiration for anyone who does the level of preparation that you're doing. So, Thank you. I Thank I you. really uh, kudos to you on that. Uh, so the night before our first game in 2018, uh, first I got a call from John Madden. My phone mm-hmm. rings. I'm like, Coach, how are you? why did I know about this? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you call me? Da, 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 da. And he said, I don't know. I didn't want to bother you. John Madden and I used to work together for many years at at ESPN and NBC. So he goes, how are you feeling? And I go, I'm pretty scared, coach. I'm, mm. I'm pretty nervous. And he goes, don't feel like you have to cram for the test. You've been preparing for this your entire career. Love it. When John Madden, says that. It's kind of like the Oracle talking. So it kind of amped my anxiety level from 10 down to maybe a six, but at least it was going down. So that's a good thing. (laughs) So that was a very, very important call I got. And then I got an email from somebody. I have no idea who it is. I don't know how he got my email address, but it said in essence, good luck to you two women. Please know that on Friday morning, a generation of girls is going to wake up and know that an entirely new dream is possible. Yeah. And (laughs) I I forward this on Hannah. We're both, like, crying, you know, because we were so busy with the preparation and this and that. We really hadn't – it really hadn't kicked in the magnitude of what we were doing and the, you know, the great Billie Jean King always says pressure is a privilege – So I don't view pressure as, as, as as anything but that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always say the butterflies, the stress, it's okay. If you channel it in the right way, if you let it propel you, it's great. If you let it paralyze you not so good. Right. So the idea that we were really carrying this mantle and the other thing that was hugely important to me is it wasn't one game which is what you've seen in some other sports. And that's <laughs> fine. I don't, you know, I don't deal with what other other networks do or anything like that. This, was, this has been a four-year commitment from Amazon. And that's, uh, as with my entire career or Hannah's career in general, the idea of longevity is, is hugely important because that's consistency. And mm-hmm. that's not being a one-shot wonder. So we were very, very, very cognizant of your 10-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And this idea, because as I said in that interview that you showed, I, I go to talk to young people and I say, Well, you know, when I was your age, I didn't exist. And they kind of look at me quizzically. They don't really understand what I'm talking about. But I go, No, no, no. When I was your age, there was no sports center. <gasps> oh my God, life a sports center. How can that be? But then I say, There was no Andrea Kramer that I could look to and say, I want to do what she I does, or a Hannah Storm, or a Pam Oliver. And now we have to understand that that is something, those are options that we give young people that, that, that I never, that we never had. And it is a great responsibility that I take very, very seriously. It's one of the reasons that I teach graduate school. Mm-hmm. It, it, when, when you get to a point in your career, look, we're all, everybody is insecure. Everybody in this silly wacky business is insecure, but at some point you have to make a determination. Am I going to be there to help someone that may replace me one day Or am I going to, how am I going to deal with that? And I've always said that you just, it's, believe me, it's, it's difficult when you are trying to help someone that, you know, may, may take your spot one day, but it's it's a responsibility. It's important to do. I never had anybody that did that for me. And Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I always do that for somebody else.
1: So you just spoke about dreams. It seems like we're pretty good teammates here, because I'm going to queue up one more clip back to the HBO uh, Real Sports with Kobe when he spoke about his daughter Gianna and having dreams, and this is what he said about dreams and his daughter. It's important for kids to have those dreams and have those visions in a very detailed manner, particularly before they go to sleep, because then when they drift off, I think subconsciously those visions come back, and when they wake up, they're, they're feeling energized or feeling inspired. Comments on Kobe's dreams and the life of Gianna. Sometimes dreams got her cut short.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, look, uh, Kobe is the dad of, of four daughters. I think that that changed him dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just being a dad, but but being a dad to two girls. Uh, I, I think that the idea of he called it dreams. You call it dreams. I call it passion Mm. and maybe you don't have it when you're 10. It's interesting because my son's been passionate about something since he was a lot younger than 10 and he's going to be making a career out of it. I was passionate about sports since I was eight. Never in my wildest dreams, because I didn't exist, did I think Mm -hmm. I'd make a career out of it. My husband is an archeologist. He's been passionate about it since he's been a kid. He made a career out of it. If, if someone can be passionate about something and it doesn't have to be at the age of eight or 10 or whatever it is, they can find that thing that makes them want to get up every day and makes them want to go to their job, which doesn't feel like work, but hopefully mm-hmm. compensates them enough so that they can live. Mm-hmm. That's pretty great. And, but I, I always say, I always say to young people, uh, particularly a lot of women that will come to me and they want to be on the air and oh by the way is as, as not to digress but i the first thing i always say to them is why do you want to be on the air mm-hmm. and if they go oh well it looks really cool you get to meet the athletes you get to go to the locker room no 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 no, no. you have no idea okay years back uh there i don't know if it, it's not, it's not the only game that's ever been canceled in the history of the nfl well,
1: the but, game uh, yeah. in,
0: in philadelphia uh for Sunday night football, we had a game that was canceled. And uh on Sunday, they still had our pregame show, football you can see that right picture there. right there. And there I am on the field at, at at Lincoln Financial Field, bundled up, basically showing people why there's no game tonight. And uh, <laughs> you know, this is not exactly the most glamorous assignment, but you know, and when you're on the sidelines and it is it is rain that is going sideways, you are chilled to every fiber of your being and you know i mean we we had a game one time when my producer goes why don't you just go stand in the tunnel what you know will the heater funeral hey this is the job you know Mm -hmm. this is the job and by the way i do not miss that one second of my life but anyway uh you know there's no as i tell the young people it's not the glamour that you think it is it's a lot Mm -hmm. of hard work it's a lot of preparation that being said I am never in the business of quashing dreams. Mm -hmm. If someone wants to do something and they are intent upon doing it, I will always support them and try to help them in any way I can to guide them to a path Mm -hmm. to accomplish that dream. It's, 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 I always, I tell people all the time, the easiest thing to do is to say no, because if you say no, it's done. You don't have to do anything. If you say yes, there's got to be follow-up action. You got to do something else. And I say, I always tell people, young people, regardless of what the industry is, don't just take no for an answer. Somebody tells you no, then... What what would you suggest? Is there something you didn't see in my resume or something in my interview? What mm-hmm. feedback do you have for me about my performance? And then you say, is there anybody else that you might suggest that I talk to, or is right. there somebody else that you another another network you or another outlet you think I might run? And then you and you always end with this. Uh, I know how busy you are. I'd like to stay on your radar. Are mm-hmm. you okay if we stay in touch?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And. Just don't let no have that note of finality.
1: Absolutely. And so,
0: those are the things that I try to encourage young people, especially at this time. We're still, you know, getting through COVID and and all that, and and jobs can and and cutbacks and things of that nature. And it's it's a very dicey situation for so many people. We're, they're not even just all young but you got to you you have to you have to keep at it and just don't let no be that end point.
1: Oh, well, you said you got I thought you were going to say you got to have faith because so much of what you said are those elements of faith. I Not- set
0: you up to say that you can sounds <laughs> better coming out of your mouth than it does mine. What can I tell no, you? No, but it,
1: uh, you said Kobe says dreams, you say passion and I say you faith say things, and it's right. the same same elements to get there, right? Absolutely. Again, when, when somebody says pray for my loved one, Well, what if it doesn't work? Does that mean that I did a bad job? And I think the same thing in your profession in sports and broadcasting, right? The faith is in fact the work. I say if somebody comes here on Yom Kippur and they don't hit a home run, they don't feel anything. It's often because they didn't have batting practice. (laughs) They didn't run their, you know, a hundred meter, a hundred yard dash before they tried to, uh, you know, have a 50 yard run in in, in the game. Um, So, Let's then finally go back to the beginning and hear that Reggie White story about religion and why that mattered uh, so much and why you put that on the air.
0: Okay. And by the way, I'm going to give you another compliment here, right? So not only are you doing your preparation, but you are exhibiting one of the great qualities that is overlooked in interviewing, and that is your good listener. Thank you. And I assume that in your day job, you have to do a lot of that. So I'm not surprised about that, but... uh, Anyway, and you I'll can tell to... my
1: wife that as well, too, right?
0: You've got me on tape now.
1: OK, there you go. So
0: edit it out <laughs> and put it on a loop and give it to her. There you go. Uh, <laughs> in a nutshell, um, I am in. I used to live in L.A., not far mm-hmm. from your synagogue. And uh, I'm out and about one day. And my phone rings and it's Reggie White. Reggie had been retired. And we, you know, I don't I, I always chafe it, you know, when journalists say, oh, yeah, I'm friends with no, 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 no. You may be friendly with someone that's different than being friends. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be friends with people that you cover. I, that's a very fine line, but anyway, that being said, Reggie retired and we were friends and he calls me up and he's, he, he's a man who was sort of at a crossroads. He was, uh, doing, had his, had his hand in a bunch of different things. He, He, at some point, had actually thought about trying to do a a, a religious theme amusement park. I mean, he Mm. just had a lot of different ideas. And he says to me, "Um, um, I really want to talk with you about kind of where I am in my religious journey. And he starts telling me some things, and I found it really, really super interesting. At that point, I go to my producer, and I say... Reggie's calling me and he's kind of offering this up and I think it could be really, really interesting. Should we pursue it? Yes, pursue it. We have another conversation and uh, we set up a time. This is in now. This is in late November. We set up a time right at the beginning of the new year for me to go to North Carolina, spend some time with Reggie. Uh, see what he's doing in his religious journey, which at that point he was studying Hebrew. Hmm. Um, So it was a really, really, really going to be a very fascinating story. My phone rings the morning of December 26th. Reggie White died. Hmm. And when the phone rings that early and you're on the West Coast, it's never good. Right. And um, uh, I went right on the air audio-wise, talking about it. It was, it was beyond shocking. It was something that was very, um, I mean, to this day, even for me personally to talk about it, just tragic. He had sleep apnea, amongst other things. Um, his wife, beloved wife Sarah, tried to revive him and he couldn't. So at the funeral, all this. Um, beginning of January, I get, A call from his, from the team chaplain for one of the teams who was very close with Reggie. And he says, um, you still have to do this story on Reggie. And I go, I'm not being trite by saying this, but it's really hard to do a story on someone when the person is dead. And he goes, no, you don't understand. He picked you. He chose you. This is like a sign. You have to do the story. Go to my producer. We talk about it. So we do the story. And what it was, was a journey through the eyes of his wife and their, his two children, this religious journey that he went on where he had stopped going to church and he wanted to learn about the Bible by reading it in its original language. And he uh, had a rabbi who was in Israel that he was learning Hebrew from. He actually went to Israel. I guess there's a place where only a few select people can ever go to see the original Torahs. He was mm-hmm. able to go in there.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: He was accused, to use his words, of becoming a Jew. Mm. when And and. uh that he left his faith behind when what he was doing, in essence, was trying to get a deeper connection to God by learning the language and learning more about Hebrew. And I, I probably am not doing a great great justice to the story, but it was so powerful. It was so amazing. And an interview had been done with Reggie talking about some of this stuff uh, with NFL Films about two months prior to that but they didn't really interview reggie but they had him practicing hebrew and it was like coming back from the dead it was just unbelievable but to espn's credit they let me tell the story it was completely about religion it aired on super bowl sunday oh wow it was an amazing story of of faith what it really means to educate yourself and what it means to to have belief mm-hmm. and um It to this day, it's one of the more impactful stories that I've ever brought to an audience. And that's what I you know, that that's what I love to do is to try to really bring something to the audience that they didn't know about and that could make them feel something. And that story with Reggie White uh, really, really did it for me. And and to this day, uh, you know, is, is very important to me.
1: You heard it here, everybody, Rabbi on the Sidelines, faith and football, it exists, and we are so grateful to have Andrea Kramer, Hall of Fame journalist, Emmy Award winning, literally the GOAT, one of the greatest of all time in the broadcasting industry, and now a friend of our community of Rabbi on the Sidelines. Andrea, thanks so much for being uh, a guest, and we look forward to seeing you when you're out in LA.
0: Thank you so much. And again, I really commend you for all the work that you do in the community, in the synagogue, and then even in, in this in this passion project of yours, Rabbi on the sideline, the preparation that you use, great questions, easy conversation, and it's really a pleasure. And uh, to you, all your listeners, stay healthy. Thank you. Keep the faith. There you keep go. The faith, have man, your passion. Man. Keep your faith. Have your dreams, whatever you want to call it. But thank you so much. And uh, when you see uh, my dear friend Pam Weisberg, if you can give her a hug, even if it's a virtual hug. It's uh, It would be greatly appreciated. So thank you so very, very much for thinking about me and having me on.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great week.